Now our next guest is a clinical psychologist and former high school teacher who says modern parenting is often good intentions gone too far and doesn't set our kids up with essential life skills. Dr Judith Locke says we're creating bonsai children, those who thrive only when the conditions are perfect and it limits their potential. In her work as a clinical psychologist, she sees a disturbing link between high effort parenting and poor outcomes for children and believes parents make their children's lives too easy by doing too much for them. She's the author of two books, The Bonsai Child and The Bonsai Student. She's with us now to talk about how we can build resilience in our children and help them face challenges, especially, of course, as they head towards exam season. 2101 and 9 to noon at rnz.co.nz if you have any questions for Judith. She's with us now. Kia ora, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Susie. A bonsai child. Um, I feel seen. What is a bonsai child? <laughs> um, a bonsai child is a child that's been raised it's kind of almost perfectly. So they've been given perfect conditions and very much like a bonsai plant, which is a perfect little tree in a perfect little pot that thrives under lots and lots and lots of um, care but doesn't thrive outside in the real world. A bonsai child similarly has been very much catered to by the parent, uh, very much given perfect conditions and all problems taken away from them. And then what we are finding is that then when these children go out in the world and face the sort of normal ups and downs of daily life, they're not as well equipped to face them because they've kind of not been taught how to face them in the younger years. How did we get here? Um, Yeah, it's been an interesting storm. It sort of started all the way back when we misinterpreted research that linked feeling good to doing well. And what we started to do is rather than realise that you only feel good if you do well in life, um, and doing well in life is not necessarily you know, getting A's and being top of the class and winning every race. Doing well is coping with your circumstances. But what we did back in the sort of 70s and 80s is we started to think that feeling good was the key. And so we started to really build children's immediate self-esteem with things like excessive praise, like look at you breathing in and out, you're so clever, and um, that sort of real excessive making them feel good um, and thinking that that was going to make them feel good in the future, but it kind of gave them perfect conditions and they weren't ready for the reality. So it's been a perfect storm. I've got to say things like neoliberalism, the idea that it's a race and you have to get your child ahead and they have to get into the right school and the you have to, you, even back to birth, you have to have your child the right way. They have to be born the right way. You have to give them the right food. Um, and I think that sort of pressure on parents and pressure on children has produced this as well. It is a really huge amount of pressure when you look at it in that lens, when you look right back to, um, you know, how there's an awful lot of um, guilt around that kind of stuff as well, obviously, that can come and shame for the parents. And, and does that then push people to kind of think, oh, well, I didn't have the baby in the right way, but so the best thing I can do is, you know, wean them correctly. And and there's this kind of constant cycle of pressure. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you can even see that in mothers, you know, in in, um, prenatal classes as well. 
I think there's a lot of expectations um, of other people mirroring your, you know, your stuff very well. And if if your neighbour isn't doing what you do as a parent or, your, you know, the other people at school aren't, you start to think, well, either I'm in the wrong or they're in the wrong. So there's not a lot of kind of choose your own adventure in parenting now. It's much more push this idea there is this perfect right way. And often that's very um, effort intensive from parents. So much more parents are doing most of the work than encouraging children to slowly take on um, more responsibility to um, make themselves happy and make themselves successful. So it is, it's been a perfect storm. And I think, I think social media hasn't helped at all in this. I think that's been a real problem in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just before we talk a little bit more about these kinds of areas, another term that you have coined, um, which I like, the Sherpa parent. Tell me about that one. Well, it actually came because I was um, around a school, as I am, and um, I saw a parent pushing two children, uh, and those children were probably uh, about seven and six or something, and she was pushing both her children up the hill. They were on scooters. She had both their school bags on her back and the children were just standing on these scooters and the mother was pushing them up. And I thought, she's their Sherpa. She's she's Sherpering them to school. She's doing all the grunt work. (laughs) They're sort of pretending that they're, you know, getting up this hill on this scooter themselves, Mm. but they're not doing anything. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen parents carry their child's school bag, even into the high school years. We see it a lot that they're doing most of the work. And I think that it becomes really problematic because we even see at university now, we see parents still doing a lot of the work for their child at university. We, you know, we see a lot of universities are getting increasing calls from parents who have taken on responsibility to remind their child of the assignment. Uh, so it, 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 and even workplaces now are getting calls from parents as well. So once you start sherpering, it's very hard to stop. And what are some of the downsides, some of the pitfalls then that you're kind of setting your children up for by doing this? You think you're helping, but not really. No, well, the, the the interesting thing is what what happens here is that the child starts to expect other people to make them happy and successful all the time. So we see a lot of academic entitlement, which is that belief that it's other people who make you academically successful. So it starts to become very much, what's my teacher doing for me to make me successful? What's my lecturer doing? What's my workplace doing? So it's a very externalized um, sense, you know, that other people should be helping me. And it also, you know, it's it's not just that kind of arrogance. It can lead to some depression as well, because we know a sense of learned helplessness, that belief that I can't affect change in my life. I have to wait for other people to do it. Um, and a real victim mentality of, one's mood only be attri- being attributed to the actions of others becomes really problematic for your sense of well-being, your sense of um, ownership of your life. So it it again, all of this stuff is with incredibly good intentions. It's just in the long term, it produces some really problematic beliefs in children, but also a real lack of essential skills in the child to sort of face um, the normal um, challenges of life. 
So how do parents um, prepare, I suppose particularly, you know, older children, teenager sort of years, for the big wide world that they're going to have to go out into at some point? I mean, I suppose much of this will perhaps begin um, with schooling, that, that children need to be able to take responsibility for themselves there? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And I mean, I know particularly we're seeing it a lot now after COVID, but we've got a real sort of sense that there's this mental health crisis as if it just came out of the blue. And a lot of it is attributed to the uh, to COVID and to, you know, this sort of terrible things that kids are facing these days. I don't think, I mean, definitely I think screens have been a huge problem for children, but really if you look at really what they're facing, it's not worse than what it used to be. It really isn't. But I think because we're ill-equipping them to face these things, we think this um, that schooling is much more challenging for them than they used than it used to be. And I do not think that's the case. But I think we almost have this expectation it is going to be problematic and then we become very hypervigilant. Oh, gosh, what's happened to my child today? What's happened there? You know, something bad might have happened and this sort of belief, which we almost in- encourage our children to think that suddenly an exam is not overcomable. Do you know, it's not able to be faced. It needs to be, you need to get special um, considerations for it or, you know, the normal expectations of what a schooling experience would be, like school camp or things. That, that That's too much for you. It's, it's understandable you're feeling so stressed about it. So we almost talk kids into these things being much more problematic than what they potentially are. A couple of questions, actually, that we're getting from listeners, which are beginning to get into this kind of territory, too. This one says, um, please ask, how can we tell to just insist on teenagers facing challenges or when to be concerned and back down when we're dealing with things like anxiety and panic attacks? Well, yeah, anxiety and panic attacks is an interesting thing, because, again, I think we use the word anxiety much more than we used to. And I think... And I've just written a column on this. I write um, a column uh, for the newspaper and I've just written a column on the fact that we're using um, therapy speak a lot more than we used to. And therapy speak is that thing where you exaggerate uh, feelings into therapeutic terms. So, for example, anxiety is a very, very specific term. It means uh, a fear that is greater than the situation demands and also a huge impact on your well-being. Now, I think sometimes nerves are actually increased to be anxiety. And I think it's a rare person that would have an exam tomorrow and not be nervous about it. I think not being nervous about an exam probably means you're not ready at all for it. Um, But being a little bit nervous, I would suggest is normal. But we've kind of um pathologized normal nerves into things that are greater than the child uh can face and so i think what needs to happen is a gentle sort of pushback what i suggest in the bonsai child i have a whole chapter on dealing with um sort of challenge like exams tomorrow um and what i suggest often it's just that you listen to your child you empathize with their situation But essential in all of this is normalising and saying, well, a lot of kids would be nervous about that. And then just becoming much more 
comfortable with the child about the outcome mm. and not thinking that there's only one good outcome that even if because everybody's done one really terrible exam we've all had that we've had the really terrible day at work we've had that disaster everybody's mm. had the disaster stand up and say the worst speech you've ever given and practically fall off the stage like everybody's done that mm. but it, it's an important learning experience so even if the worst outcome comes and it doesn't sort of go well nothing's it doesn't determine the rest of your life life is very zigzaggy so I think becoming you know rather than assuring your child they're going to be successful in what they do, which is what a lot of parents do. The child says, oh, I'm worried about the exam. I think I'm going to fail. And the parent will say, no, you're not going to fail. You're going to be okay. Do you know? You've worked really hard for this. Whereas I think you've got to get a little bit more, well, let's see what happens. You know, mm. it's it's usually never as bad as you predict. Mm. You know, it's, facing it, it's never as bad. In fact, if anything, it's a learning experience. Interestingly enough, what you're talking about there with um, your column that you've been writing about with uh, this idea of therapy speak coming in more and more. We spoke yesterday on Nine to Noon with Professor Nick Haslam from the University of Melbourne, who's just been doing some work on exactly this. If you're wanting to go back and have a wee listen to that, rnz.co.nz and then search for Nine to Noon or indeed search for Nick Haslam. Now, there's another one in here, Judith which is quite an interesting area to be touching on. Um, This texture says, I have a child with dyspraxia. A lot of things are more difficult, so I give him extra help. Um, The question, I suppose, is how do I know uh, how much is too much? Because for these sorts of situations, it's kind of a hidden disability, effectively. Um, This person saying, I'm definitely a Sherpa. Uh, What do you think about (laughs) things like that, where where there are some kids where you have to give them um, a bit more? Yeah, you do. You do. But I think what you have to do is have an exit plan of that as well. You cannot keep being extremely present while they do homework and things like that, that you have to actually step back a little bit eventually. And you need to have a plan for that. I think you start with, and I talk about this very much in the bonsai student, because What happens, unfortunately, when a child is um, given a term of um, some sort of learning difficulty or disability or some sort of challenge in the space is that often parents um, do a thing we you would call the um, the nurture trap. And the nurture trap is where parents step in a little bit too much to help their child who they feel needs more help. And inadvertently, what happens with that is that the child actually doesn't get the opportunities to slowly step up and face more challenging things because the parents are stepping in too much um, and and not slowly stepping back from stepping in. So things you can do, um, stage one is actually not offering help before they ask. It becomes really, and, and make decisions about when that's going to happen. So if your child is, uh, say, eight years old and you are regularly sitting with them doing their homework, what you need to do, say, when they turn nine or when they come into a new year of school is say, right, I'm not going to sit with you anymore to do your homework. If you've got any problems, you can come and ask me and I'll come and, you know, but I'm going to see how much you can do by yourself. And so you've got to make sure that you're not sitting exactly next to them all the time, that I get reliant on that kind of praise that comes in a lot. And then you decide that, when they do ask you for help, you get them to help you. So you, they come, you're in the kitchen cutting up the vegetables and you say, 
and they come and say, can you help me with this? You say, absolutely. If you can help me cut these vegetables for a while, I'll have a bit of time. So you start to slowly get them more owning um, their work and also owning the assistance that you give them and working for that as well. Um, so there's there's good ways you could do that, and that's developing their independence. Yeah, there's a lot of people getting in touch with us now. A lot of people saying this resonates so much. Uh, one texter saying, a sec- as a secondary school teacher, we see this a lot. It's challenging to work with families who are acting with love, but also enabling the young people to opt out of challenging learning experience that would help develop resilience. How do you suggest that schools work with families so that families feel safer with their young people having learning experiences that do challenge them? Okay, so the main way I personally work with schools is I do parenting talks that gently parent uh, push, you know, encourage parents to sort of step back a little bit so their child steps up and gives them because you usually need to do it in slightly different ways. In the younger years, you can be going along quite nicely doing everything for your child and there are no problems evident yet. Those problems will only emerge when the child starts to individuate. So upper primary, mid to upper primary, that's the only time you're going to start. You know, when they get eight years old and they don't choose your company anymore, that's when you're going to start seeing the issues. Previous to that, but so you need sort of slightly different things. You need to get them on the different road in the younger years and then you need to sort of deal with the issues that occur if they have been overdoing it. So there's two sort of different sessions that need to be offered. The other thing I'm doing a lot of now, and probably my next book in the Bonsai Child series will be a book for teachers, um, because I work with teachers now in gently encouraging parents to accept their professional, you know, the teacher's professional decision, because I think Again, parents want the best for their child and they misunderstand that, you know, there's an important part of a child being disappointed. As I say to parents all the time, if your child is not being disappointed by the school on a semi-regular basis, you're not getting your value for money. Like they need to be disappointed by the school. But unfortunately, these days when parents are yeah, know that their child is disappointed, they're often up at the school saying to the teacher, why did you not put the, my child in their, the class with their best friend or why did you not give them an A on their assignment and they work so hard? So teachers need to be able to de- explain those decisions back and their long-term reasons and criteria sheets. So mm. it's a hard thing because everybody's doing the best they can. Um, nobody's doing this deliberately, but it just it needs to be some explanation to them of, you know, a palatable explanation so that the parents on board as well. When you're looking at children coming up to uh, exams, that kind of thing, especially when it's the sort of the final year and the you know crucial um, things for university entrance, that kind of thing. Do you need to ease off with some of the responsibilities that you're giving your child, whether that's chores around the house or um, whatever other things they've got going on so that they can focus on their schoolwork? Or should you just carry on and and that in itself is a bit of a learning experience that you have to, you know, divide your time up, you have to get used to, to juggling all these different expectations on you? Yeah, it's a really important area. And I think, unfortunately, we muck up children's last year of school 
because we think it's such an important year that gets them into university or, do you know, that really is their final um, opportunity to sort of get the most out of their schooling. And what I see a lot of parents do is they say, well, you don't need to do chores this year because it's such an important, you've got so many important exams and there's so many important things going on. And I think what then happens is the child ceases to learn how to juggle. And so I think what's happening now with the extremely high dropout rates, particularly we're seeing in Australia, I do think to a certain degree there's too many people going to university. I think there are some students that aren't necessarily suited for university who are going, but I think a lot of them aren't well prepared for university because they have had almost what I'd describe as perfect situations at home. They haven't had to juggle responsibilities of doing their chores as well as study for the exam, as well as doing part-time job, which is what they're going to face when they leave school. Mm. Whether they go to university, whether they work, whatever they do, they're going to have to juggle a lot more and they can't. If they have had no experience of juggling the year before, it really doesn't set them up well for that first year. So there's an entire chapter in the Bonsai Student where I talk about year 12 and beyond and I think, year, and of course, year 12 being Australia, um, but, you know, year 13, whatever it is, I think that you their final year of school needs to have an eye on next year, mm. not just an eye on this year. Because if you just have an eye on this year, you are only preparing them for this year and they're going to be less prepared for next year. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Judith Locke, Dr. Judith Locke, thank you very much for your time on Nine to Noon this morning. Uh, The author of two books, The Bonsai Child and The Bonsai Student.